This is Overnight on ABC Radio. Coming up pretty soon, David Kilby with The Quirk and the Dead. But before we get to any of that, let's cross to Boston in the great state or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Celeste Katzmaston is there for us. Celeste, good morning. Good morning. Look, you know, I don't want to seem to be anti-Donald Trump, but it seems like there is nothing that he will not do to try and make money. And one of the most recent things was burying his first wife uh, on his golf course near the first uh, green, I think, um, so that he could get a kind of tax deduction and therefore turn it into a cemetery or something like that. And now he's making money out of the um, FBI search of the Mar-a-Lago Club or his home in uh, Florida. How is he doing that? Well, basically, he's playing the victim very heavily. He's stoking up outrage and saying that he is being uh, persecuted by the FBI and by the Justice Department. And he's saying, if you don't believe that I should be, uh, you know, under political attack by the federal government, then give me money. Show your support for me by writing me a check. So people have been doing this, though. That's the scary thing. Yeah, he has definitely uh, started making a ton of money, sending out a lot more emails and text messages. And I sign up for these things just in the course of my work. I sign up for lots of different candidates' messages, and they are in in real you know sort of mode push when it comes to uh, trying to gin up support and get people worked up and frankly angry. And and some people have been taking that out. Uh, in other ways than giving Donald Trump money, which is a separate story, but definitely a point to be concerned about. Yeah, all righty. So um, we're still, you know, we haven't even got to the midterms, so we're not even halfway through the the first term or the only term possibly of Joe Biden. Uh, How long before Trump decides, you know what, I'm going to make this um, official, I am going to announce that I'm running because he can he can wait until well the middle of what 2023 if he wants to, or 20. He certainly has time. Yeah. yeah, he certainly does have time to make that decision, and I think that uh, you know there are sort of uh, positives and negatives of doing either one. You know, the positive is that he can make himself sort of an official candidate, get into the race, uh, maybe deter other people from entering and sort of clear the field, um, get the attention that is accorded certainly by the media, but also by, uh, you know, by others, by voters, by donors um, of being an official candidate. The drawback is that official candidates have certain rules that they have to live by, such as financial disclosures and, and things like that, and being expected to participate in certain kinds of events and so on, he may not want to take that step. You know, if he's if he's raising something like a million dollars a day for at least a few days since um, the uh, federal agents went to his home, Mar-a-Lago in Florida, to find uh, documents that he may have taken with him uh, inappropriately from the White House, you know, he can just coast on that for for quite a while. Um, So it's really up to him. He's sort of hinting that he might make a move sooner rather than later. But again, with Donald Trump, it's uh, it's all about the suspense and even the idea of when he's going to make the decision becomes sort of like an apprentice episode. So you remember back in 2016 when he did win the election and he got the Republican nomination. That was a huge field of Republicans. They Everyone thought they had a chance. No one really gave him much of a chance. 
they, you know, some people, myself included, thought, well, once the you know the voters start, his support will kind of dissipate, and that didn't happen. Of course, I was like many people wrong about his appeal. I thought people would, you know, see through him as the sort of person that he apparently is, but. This time there isn't going to be that kind of large field. Yet there will be a lot of people scared off and thinking, well, you know, I might try it again in four years' time perhaps. Um, that, you know, he is so, he has so much support, he has so much money, he's raising so much money, that there won't be that large field, will there? I don't think so. I mean, there will be people and there's some discussion in the party about whether uh, Trump's time is over. He is considerably older, for one thing. That's that's something worth uh, thinking about for some people. But also some people feel like the party needs to move on and go in a different direction, a younger direction. There is a bench. There are people who are interested, who are out there building a profile. Um, so, yeah, I certainly remember when Donald Trump was uh, thinking about running. I talked to him not that long before he actually declared and he was still thinking about it and thinking about who he might endorse and so on. And at the time, people like Scott Walker and Jeb Bush were really sort of the primary people we were interested in. So to go from re- like legitimately working for a newspaper that ran a picture of Donald Trump in clown makeup when he started talking about being president to being at his victory party, covering it for the same, you know, uh, for the same type of readership on, on election night in 2016, uh, really sort of mind boggling and people were shocked. So his vice president, Mike Pence, he's making all the sort of noises that people who run for president make. And he's now saying, well, he might actually, appear before the January 6th committee and, you know, tell them what happened. Or we'll find out what happened. Presumably he's working on a book about it. Uh, what chance would you give him if, if people will think, well, maybe I don't like Trump, but I'm, I'm, I like that kind of conservatism, I'll vote for Pence? Well, I think Pence is a different kind of candidate in a lot of respects. I mean, first of all, he has been Pardon me. He has uh, had executive experience uh, outside of Washington. He's been uh, governor uh, of Indiana, I believe. And, you know, he is, frankly, at heart, I think, much more conservative than Donald Trump. He has a conservative track record for a very long time. Uh, and I think he's a different kind of person. He's a different kind of manager. He's He was a formerly a member of Congress, too, actually, going way back. Um, so he you know, certainly has this sort of conservative credentials to appeal to people, but people had those kinds of conservative credentials in 2016. There were candidates like Ted Cruz, notably, was sort of a constitutional conservative uh, in that race. People had that option and uh, Donald Trump blew him out. And I think that if you look at the dynamic of people saying, uh, well, I like Trump, so why wouldn't I like his vice president? Uh, people being extremely motivated. I mean, going so far as to erect a gallows in Washington and run around yelling, hang Mike Pence. Like if they like Trump, they, they're not going to sort of there's no, you know, uh, commutative uh, equation there where they transfer that love of Trump to Mike Pence because essentially Trump has been ginning people up as well to be angry at Mike Pence. So I'm just not sure where he lands. He's out there right now telling people don't be going out there saying threatening things about uh, federal agents and about law enforcement because they went to Donald Trump's house to look for these documents. And I'm just not sure it's getting the kind of traction that Trump naturally has for a lot of different reasons. 
So the amazing thing is that, you know, Donald Trump might be convicted. We don't know. I mean, a lot of people would like to see it happen. Whether it will, I don't know, uh, for taking home uh, these classified documents. Under the same law, I think, that he imposed or he had passed in order to try and get Hillary Clinton. It would be rather ironic, would it not, if it came back to bite Trump? Yeah, very much so. I mean, taking these documents, taking documents out of the White House under any circumstances is a big deal. We have, uh, uh, you know, National Archives law, federal records laws that prohibit taking these things uh, into your personal possession. When you leave, you don't just get to grab a bunch of stuff, like even all the gifts that get sent to presidents that get sent into storage and they're cataloged and they're archived and stuff. You can't just walk away with things in your pockets when you're the president of the United States. That's just not it. And so it, it will be interesting to see how far this goes. I don't know if there is going to be a, sort of a prosecution and conviction still sort of early. This this just happened pretty recently. But uh, it would be ironic if he ended up sort of falling under under the aegis of something that he had enthusiastically supported, uh, essentially to weaponize it against a candidate or against a person that he did not like. And if he's convicted of anything, does that rule him out from running for president? Yeah, I mean there are there are some restrictions on uh, people who can and cannot run for president or any office, hold elected office, hold official office, and you know there there are a lot of different ways that could play out. But there are um, you know there are certainly rules in this country about not being able to personally profit from holding elected office. There are restrictions on. Uh, records of destroying or concealing or taking away records. There there are a lot of different ways this could go. And Donald Trump is squarely in the middle of all that. We just don't know how it ends up. You know, last time in 2016 when he ran, uh, we would have got his tax records, but there was a routine audit going on, he said. Uh, has that routine audit ever been finished? Because I'd love to see his tax records for the 20, when he runs in 2024. I don't know if the full audit was totally completed or if they still have outstanding questions, but honestly, um, being under audit is not a reason to not be able to release your tax records. Like, it's just not. That reasoning does not hold up. It is not a legitimate excuse. You mm. can release your records if you are under audit. They're your records. Okay, let's move on from him to a shocking moment, really, which was the attack on Salman Rushdie in well, really upstate New York. You can barely go any further upstate. You're practically uh, in Canada uh, if you're uh, over the water from Chautauqua in uh, upstate New York and not the sort of place that you would expect an attack like this to occur. Well, that's what's happened. And, uh, of course, well, we know that Salman Rushdie is still in hospital. The bloke has been uh, charged. And Rushdie's books are actually starting to sell again. Yeah, since he got uh, since he was involved in this attack from a guy who apparently was from New Jersey, went all the way up there. As you say, I mean that's that is north, that is yeah. west and north in, in New York State, Chautauqua, uh, probably the nearest city being Buffalo. Um, but anyway, yeah, people have had a renewed interest in Salman Rushdie and in his books, uh, uh, Satanic Verses, his his most famous book, arguably, and the one that got him in in a lot of trouble with certain sectors of the Muslim world. 
world got this fatwa issued against him uh, is actually going up the charts. I think it was uh, something like in the top 10 um, on, on Amazon for fiction books uh, in the, you know, in the time immediately after this attack. So uh, people uh, certainly remember, I certainly remember when, when that book came out, um, I was much younger, but um, you know, People sort of saying, hey, I remember that. And maybe I didn't have a chance to read it or even just buying the book yeah. to show support for him in some way. Exactly. I think the person who's been charged, alleged to have committed this crime, he wasn't even born when the book came out. So his outrage uh, is very much after the fact. Um, I'm guessing, I don't know, and I can't make this comment perhaps, I doubt this bloke's actually read the book. I doubt that any of the people that, were in the streets calling for uh, Rushdie's death, had actually ever read the book. They were told that it was, you know, uh, offensive. I don't know anyone who's read the Satanic Verses. I've never read it. Uh, I think it's probably hard to find in bookstores because they don't want to stock it because they don't want to invite trouble. It's a bit different if you're an online seller. I've never seen it at a second-hand store either. So, you know, do you know anyone who's read it? Have you read it? I have not read it. I have not read it. I mean, I remember the controversy when it came out, but this is this is going back quite a while. But I, I do remember uh, a lot of people getting enraged about it or being interested in it. And it, it was sort of a, a very buzzworthy book at the time. But I can't say that I've like curled up next to the fireplace with it. No. Do we even know what was so offensive? I understand that, uh, you know, there are some religions that are far more sensitive to- uh, than others, but what was it about it? Do we know? I, I I wouldn't even have a clue what was so offensive. I think the the most I can say is that I think that broadly some people thought it was a negative depiction of Islam. All right. Speaking of books, I mean, I'm glad people are buying those books and buying other Rushdie books, but there are some books that people are not being allowed to buy. And again, I, I cannot understand that the United States, a country which trumpets free speech, is so keen on cracking down on what people can read. I was even reading the other day that a a picture book about uh, the diary of Anne Frank has been banned. Now, it's beyond belief, but anyway, um, there are states throughout the United States that are, and I hate this word as well, purging, that again sounds like something out of Nazi Germany, um, books from libraries and and, then schools. What is going on? Uh, Basically, this this is sort of a a trend that we're seeing now where uh, a lot of discussions about what it is okay and not okay for kids to read and have access to, particularly in in, the fiction genres uh, is now sort of coming into effect in this school year. School in in the U.S. typically starts in August, mostly in September, though. And so we are now seeing in a lot of uh, school districts in different states for the first time that. Um, sorry, there's something happening here. Um, okay? Sorry, my phone was going. Yeah, that was just my phone going crazy. Right. Um, so now what we're seeing is that um, these discussions about. Um, about what kids should have access to are coming into effect. And that might be everything from removing books from school libraries to having sort of uh, almost like a rating system like you would have for the movies uh, about um, whether it's okay for kids to have this or kids at a certain age or kids needing uh, 
parental permission even, or allowing parents to track what books their kids have in the libraries, what kids are taking out of the libraries and so on. But generally these things deal with, they might deal with issues of of sexuality, of being gay or lesbian, of being trans. They might be issues of race, um, you know, lots, lots of things like that, that, you know, admittedly might be controversial that you might want to think about whether um, kids should read a certain age before they're sort of mature enough to process uh, this information. But, you know, that's part of like designing any school's basic curriculum, right? And these, these are not um, you know, th these are not things that are just sort of being thrown out there. We're not talking about uh, pornography or something per se, but it's part of a bigger discussion in the United States about sort of um, whether books that are in the schools or books that kids have access to should reflect sort of family values or whether families should have control over no. uh, what their kids are exposed to. Yeah. That's that's the argument yeah. I'm saying. I'm not uh, saying I'm sure. for that but, I mean specifically family values a particular type of family values it's not a family where it could be two men or two women or a gay child or whatever that those families are ignored they are told that they're wrong there's something wrong with them and they shouldn't be recognized they shouldn't read about uh, people in similar situations so it's a very narrow view of what a family is now I'm proud to say that someone else that we have on this program and in fact will be on the program tomorrow we talk to her every few months runs a children's bookstore in a small town in Kentucky and every time someone tries to ban a book, she puts it in a front window to say, here, you can come and buy it at my shop. So I think that is fantastic, and I wish more people would do that. But this is also part of America, and that is that, you know, school boards run curriculum and syllabuses at schools. It's not done on necessarily a statewide basis. And if it was on a statewide basis you would think that maybe there might be a slightly more broad-minded approach, or am I wrong? Well, there there certainly is uh, definitely a layer of local control over what happens in schools, whether it's spending, whether it's curricula, whether it's uh, school approving school bonds to spend money for uh, an expansion of schools or something like that. But yeah, I mean, to your point, um, these are discussions that have been happening for a long time. But for myself, when somebody uses the phrase family values, the first question in my mind is always whose family? Yeah, exactly. Right. You know. And if it's, you know, if it's something that people are talking about, I, I like, I, I just don't think, I mean, and again, this is a personal opinion, I'm not setting the policy, but I think it's reasonable. And I remember from growing up, there were certain things that you read when you got older, but I don't remember ever being restricted from taking a book out of the library or having books oh, sort God. of you know, purged from uh, from the library because purged. somebody, because somebody Some one person. thought they were not okay. I mean, it's a short step to burning them, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Speaking of which, let's move on, shall we? Celeste Katz, Master, is our guest. I mean, I shake my head. But, um, you know, look, I well, we're not out of the pandemic, obviously. There's still thousands of people uh, contracting it, and, you know, dozens perhaps dying every day just in Australia. But people are starting to look back at how it might have been handled differently and the head of the or the director of the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention or the CDC, Centres for Disease Control, says that um, 
the CDC, failed to respond quickly enough and needed to be overhauled. Now, again, there's been a lot of criticism also of you know our former Prime Minister, and he had a spirited defence in another bizarre story this week um, about his handling of the the pandemic. Is it too early to be critical while we're still in it? And when honestly, people didn't know what we didn't know how it was going to end, did we? Well, we. I don't think we can pin blame for the entire pandemic on the CDC. Yeah, I don't think that's fair. I mean, we really didn't know. I mean, I remember spraying Lysol on the mail and things like that because we didn't know or talking to doctors who advised not leaning against walls in a public yeah. place because you, well, we, we did know. not know at that time. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that that is one issue. And that's it's fair to say that there were things that we did not know. I think that when we're talking about what we're hearing now from the head of the CDC calling for sort of an overhaul of the agency is um, different from that. I don't think it's so much about about specific blame associated with um, the coronavirus pandemic, but it's about how the agency works and what they prioritize and how quickly they move. I mean, the CDC is responding to life-threatening emergencies. And I think essentially she's saying, look, we have to be more nimble. I mean, it cannot take, we, we can't be there trying to like uh, do a U-turn in a cruise ship right? If there are people getting sick and dying in large numbers, we have to be able to respond quickly. And also we have to have sort of less of an academic focus, mm -hmm. less of an inward look at a research focus and get information out to people that will keep them alive and healthy and safe to the extent that is possible. You know, I think you and I have already talked about sort of how there's been some criticism of, well, we have monkeypox emergent in the United States. And we have a lot of things that we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic where they applied in terms of getting the word out to people, getting testing out, getting vaccine out. Um, you know, the I think what she's saying, uh, you know, in a very general sense, but also sort of urgently is we need to rethink the purpose of this agency. And if the purpose of the agency is to keep people healthy and safe, uh, especially in an emergency situation, then we need to sort of, uh, you know, retool how we think about our job in order to to perform that function. OK. And finally, a local story. That's another sad one. Boston Children's Hospital is being inundated by a harassment campaign that the medical provider, the hospital says, was sparked by misinformation about its transgender health program. That should be the business of the doctor and of the person or the patient and the family. Why anyone else thinks they need to have a say in the matter, I don't know. But, uh, you know, are they actually? Or what is going on at Boston Children's Hospital? So they've been getting a lot of threats and a lot of menacing and so on. Um, they do uh, sort of gender reassignment or I don't know, people call it gender affirmation or yeah, gender reassignment surgery yeah. on people who are 18 and older. So people maybe have been in their treatment, but they do some of these surgeries on people 18 and older. And this conservative social media account ended up putting out false information saying that they were essentially doing hysterectomies on young girls, you know. Um, you yeah, know, very, right. very young girls. And it just wasn't true. But I think it played into a lot of people's misunderstandings and fears or prejudices about um, gender and gender related uh, surgeries. And so they're just trying to be out there saying, look, we're not doing this, no matter how you feel about that, how you would feel about that in a sort of hypothetical conditional way. That's not what we do here.
So I think it's just been scary for people who are, you know, especially as we're in this, you know, bigger debate about the fallout from the overturning of Roe versus Wade uh, in the Dobbs decision and about how that's sort of changing the the medical landscape, you know, in terms of yeah. reproductive health care. Like, it, but it's just scary. I mean, this is a children's hospital under attack because of lies on mm. the Internet. No, surely. Reminds me of a, there's a cartoon of someone saying, you know, I've got to correct them. There's something wrong on the Internet. You think, yeah, it's just full of that sort of stuff. Anyway, um, Celeste, I hope that by the time we speak again in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have some happy stories as well. I will keep an eye out for sure. <laughs> Thanks very much, Celeste. Always a pleasure. Celeste Katzmarston in the United States.